We will be reading uh, from 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 10, really just three words in verse 10. Uh, And this is where we began last week. And Paul writes this, for those who are sexually immoral, for homosexuals, and for slavers. Now that seems like an abrupt list or an uncoordinated list, but we've been discussing Paul's use of the law, what he's doing in context in 1 Timothy. And we've already established that one of the things Paul is doing is he is establishing his apostolic authority to give the church good sound teaching on which to run. And that he's not doing that for an abstract theological purpose, but he's doing it practically to tell Timothy, hey, look out for these kinds of people. Be on the lookout for people who are falsely teaching. And if you want to know what lawbreakers look like, if you want to know what the law applied today looks like, here's a list, Timothy. He goes straight to the Ten Commandments. He kind of lists those out. And we've been studying over the last couple of weeks how Paul has been going through the Ten Commandments uh, for those who are unholy, uh, for blasphemers, Uh, for those who are going to slay father and mother. And as he says right there at the end of verse 9, for those who are slayers of man, those who kill other people bearing the image of God. And then last week, we got to verse 10, where he says there's the sexually immoral, there's the homosexual, and then here today we are to the text where it says, well, depending on your English translation, many things, but uh, kidnappers, enslavers, man-stealers, something to that effect. Now here's the question. Uh, why is Paul uh, here in his exposition and application of the law of God? I think last week we established that Paul uh, is telling the people something that is relevant to their context, right? Last week we said that Paul doesn't just stop at sexual immorality. He actually expounds what it means to not commit adultery by saying sexual immorality and homosexuality. He uses two terms to clarify to his culture what is right and what is wrong. He has to because the culture is a little bit confused about what is right and what is wrong. And here, he strikes at the very heart of a very common practice in the Roman world, namely a certain practice in the slave system of the Roman Empire. Uh, Roman slavery is wicked in many ways. Uh, In some ways, it's very different from slavery as we would conceive it. Um, But nevertheless, Paul kind of strikes at the heart and says there's a certain kind of violation of God's law, and that is here enslavers. Uh, Now, if you were tracking with the list of the Ten Commandments, you had last week, do not commit adultery, and this week we come to, you shall not steal. So Paul applies the command, do not steal, as equivalent to, uh, do not steal men, or in some sense, participate in slavery. That's how Paul's expounding this to his audience, his context. Now, this tells us a great deal about Paul's argumentation, but I think it tells us a great deal about our world as well. It's probably not a surprise or a shock if I was to tell you that at the height of uh, the beginnings and the murmurings of World War II unfolding, uh, one of the first things that the Nazi party had to do to establish a grip on Germany and to begin to oppress its citizens, not all its citizens, but some of those who were citizens in Germany, uh, was they had to get the church to do things on their behalf. And one of the things that the Nazi party did is they told the church, If you have Jewish people, you need to turn them away from the church. They are enemies of our good nation. And you should turn them over to the authorities. Don't provide hiding for them. Don't aid and abet a Jew who's trying to escape punishment. 
You ought to treat them as we tell you to treat them. And as history would tell us, not all churches in Nazi Germany went along with that, but some churches, enough churches, did. Enough for the church to have, by and large, in mass, sided with the Nazi party and to begin what would become a downfall for the Jews in Nazi Germany, where they had to flee to all other countries and they found much oppression during the course of the war. Now, we might look from our vantage point at those activities and say, obviously, that's wrong. That shouldn't have happened. But then the question becomes, who says that that was wrong? And, and if it's so clear in God's word that that was wrong, why is it that Christians, the ones who know God's word and should apply God's word rightly, were the very people who, per, who were persuaded to either overlook or justify their actions when they conducted that in Nazi Germany. We could ask the same question here, where Paul says here slavery is clearly wrong. It's a violation of the Ten Commandments. And yet, in the, in the history of this country, we have Christians who advocated for and used Scripture to cite and support enslaving people who had a different color of skin from them, who had been chatteled across sea and land away from home, and they said, this is justified because, and they gave scripture and citation and, and did away with texts like this and justified it by other means. What is it in humanity, that propensity to escape God's law, and why is it that certain people have such massive blind spots when it comes to sin? I think one thing that those two examples tell us is that truth can never be decided by consensus. Truth cannot be decided by, well, if you get enough people in a certain society, in a certain region, in a certain area together, then you can sign off, this is now good or okay. Truth can never be decided that way. Because depending on who you have making that decision or what era of human history you're in that's making that decision, uh, truth is a shifting standard. The Nazis said it was truly good and right for Jews to be turned over to them for the, for the Nazi party to do as they would. Certain white Protestant Christians in America said it was fine and good for them to own people who had been brought over unlawfully and for them to oppress them and to own them as property and treat them as such. Truth cannot be decided by consensus. Now, this is obvious from the text. I want to prove that to you. Because the text here clearly says there's no, there's no way around it. Slavery is what Paul is forbidding here. If you were to uh, bust out a dictionary of Greek terms, some of the best that are in existence, uh, you could look up this term that Paul uses here. He uses it one time in the entire New Testament. It means one thing. <laughs> it means those who traffic other humans as property and, and enslave them in that way. The Bible expressly forbids it under the seventh commandment. It's clearly wrong. Now you might say, well, what about other aspects of scripture? Uh, are they in accord with Paul's teaching here or are they in disunity with Paul? Some people would say, well, the Bible doesn't actually teach that slavery is sinful or wrong because, well, the Israelites own slaves or we have people in the New Testament church who own slaves. What about those examples? Couldn't we justify slavery under those contexts? Firstly, uh, you don't need to turn there, but uh, the Bible has always said that slavery is wrong. For example, Exodus chapter 21, verse 16, 
Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him, they shall be put to death. It's the only time when a capital punishment is required for violating the seventh commandment. If you steal someone's ox, uh, you're supposed to pay them back whatever the ox is worth. Or if you steal someone's lamb or sheep or property, you're supposed to rest, uh, provide restitution, but it doesn't require your life of you. If you steal an image bearer of God and you are caught doing so, God's law says it requires death. So we know how seriously God's law takes this. That's Exodus. And yet the Jewish people, in some other passage of scripture we know, had slaves. Even in the Exodus account, the Jewish people, when they leave Egypt, they're in possession of slaves. It says them and their slaves left the land. So what's going on? Well, not all slavery is slavery as the way we would define it. Much of what is called slavery in the Bible and by scripture is actually voluntary contractual arrangements between individuals. You can think about, well, Jacob, who enters into a contractual obligation with Laban for seven years to marry one of his daughters. He is rightly considered an employee or in some cases a slave of him in a voluntary sense, but he is not a slave in the sense that we would consider slaves from our vantage point kind of tainted through a, a couple hundred years of Western history. This is true through every instance of slavery in the Old Testament that is promoted as being something you can live rightly in and accord to God's law within, and a slavery here which is condemned overtly, the kind of stealing someone against their will and selling them against their will, which more accurately describes the kind of slavery that took place in America, which is very different from the kind of slavery the Bible otherwise approves of. Now there's one other set of texts that people might point to in the New Testament to say, doesn't this justify slavery, which would be the book of Philemon. Philemon, if you don't know, he was a slave owner, a member in good standing with the early church, likely the person whose house the church met in. Uh, we could think of him as a, a highly esteemed man in the church or possibly an elder within the church. He's, he's of high regard. And yet he owned a slave, Onesimus. Onesimus fled from Philemon, found a ministry with Paul, Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon with a letter, which we have recorded in the New Testament, uh, where Paul pleads with Philemon to let Onesimus and receive him back as a brother, not exacting any kind of punishment from him. And so then the question is, well, is Paul supporting slavery? Or about Ephesians where Paul says, uh, masters should treat their slaves with respect, slaves should honor their masters. What's going on there? Paul's context is clearly that of one who's aware of the distinction between the kind of slavery which traffics humans and the kind of slavery which is a voluntary contractual agreement. Because Paul does not condemn what's happening between Philemon and Onesimus, it is very likely the case that he knew it was the kind of slavery which was often always practiced in the Roman world more akin to employment. Or Onesimus would have found himself employed by Philemon, be earning a wage from Philemon, and having, let's say, after earning his wage, fled from him, to steal from him. That's what is accused in the letter. That's very different than the kind of slavery that Paul talks about here, those who traffic other humans as a form of slavery. One is livable under a Christian worldview. The other is obviously condemned. Now, that does not mean the Bible says this is, should be normative in practice. Uh, that would be very much like how divorce is, we're told how to, got, how to walk our way through it in scripture if divorce happens but we're also not told that we should be actively promoting and engaging in that kind of a thing. 
I think so it is with the institution of slavery. Paul does not say slavery should be widely practiced all over the world in this kind of way. He's simply saying in this cultural reality, Christians and their slave masters who are believers can live according to God's word and honoring one another as image bearers of Christ because it's more like employment. That's different than what he expressly condemns here as a violation of the seventh commandment. Now, I've hopefully at least laid out that case for you. I've given you a broad survey of the text. There's many more to cover. But now we can come to the question, okay, what's the point of learning all of that about the scripture's position on slavery? Why bother talking about all those things? Well, as we've been studying God's law, one of the things I've consistently said is we need to, as a church, learn to love God's law. And we know that God's law is lovable. It is lovely. It is beautiful. And so my contention is with all of the law of God, and specifically as we look at this text tonight, really this word tonight, uh, we must embrace it and all of its teaching. We have to embrace God's law as the foundation of human morality. I mentioned earlier with the example of the Nazis, by what standard or definition or right or wrong code would the Christians have said no to the Nazi party on? Why would they have said no? It's God's word. They say no because God's word says no. They don't say no because it feels right or wrong to them. They don't say no because other people who call themselves Christians sign off according to it. They say no because God's word says no. Many today will look back at what happened in the past, like the Nazis, and say, obviously that was wrong, what happened there. People shouldn't do that kind of thing. But they're not standing on any kind of moral footing that could be replicated anywhere in, in history. It's, it's inconsistent at best. But although we rejoice in the fact that people, according to common grace, can recognize things as wrong. But at the end of the day, we say, that's because of God's word. God's word says it's wrong. Now, as Christians, whereas last week I said we might be tempted to be embarrassed of the Bible's teaching on homosexuality and adultery, uh, in this case, I think this is the kind of text we could show someone, look how clearly the Bible condemns something that everyone recognizes as wrong, and we should lead the charge and say, look how wonderful God's word is. Because everyone who is aware and has modern sensibilities would have to say, according to culture, because they were discipled into it, slavery was so wrong. And we can say, yes, and God said it here thousands of years before our culture came to its senses. The Bible has morality, and people often borrow from the Bible's morality when it suits them. For instance, if you were to ask someone today, you just grab a college student from a college campus off into the street, or one of your coworkers who's not a believer, and you say, would it be wrong if I killed someone? I just went home, and I swerved in the street, and I ran someone over on the sidewalk. I drove away. I didn't call anybody. Would that be wrong? Absolutely, it'd be wrong. And most people would say, of course, that's wrong. Then the question becomes, well, why? What's wrong about killing someone? It's just cells versus cells, or it's just matter versus matter. What's so morally wrong about that kind of a thing? But people bear the image of God. So it's wrong to take the life of someone who bears the image of God. God's word says so. And people borrow from its morality, but that does not change the fact that they borrow from it, even if they don't know that they're borrowing from it. So we embrace God's word as the foundation of morality, and we know that everyone else who is speaking sanely about the world is actually, whether they know it or not, stealing or borrowing or citing without quotation, plagiarizing from Scripture's morality. So we embrace it because it is the foundation of morality. Secondly, we embrace God's word and his law as a tool to convict us of sin. 
Now I say us because we can often be tempted at points like this when we look down the corridors of history to say, look how sinful they were or how wrong that was. I'm sure when I was giving you the example of the church in Nazi Germany, you were saying, obviously wrong. Now here's the question. What does Jesus say when we are looking at someone else and saying how obviously wrong their sin is? Matthew 7, 4, and 5. Don't look at the log in your neighbor's eye, someone else around you removed from you, and say, look how sinful that is. Try to dig the speck out of their eye. Why don't you dig with the log in your own eye, recognizing it as wrong and sinful, and deal with your own sin before you deal with someone else's sin? That's what the Word of God does. It doesn't tell us how to condemn other people, although it does tell us how to judge. It tells us primarily how we deal with sin in our own hearts. So what are sins that we struggle with that are not so obvious to us, blind spots like slavery would have been in the ancient world? Well, for us, there are many sins that would qualify as that, sins that are often accepted today. You could even look at our discussion last week on homosexuality and say, maybe, just maybe, our culture has told us to believe that this is good and we have listened to culture more than God's word. And maybe 100, 200, 300 years from now, Christians will look back at the Christian church today and say, isn't God's word so obvious about that? Or abortion, where so many people today have bought into the worldview that this is somehow to be tolerated or practiced, or even in some sense not talked about because it makes people uncomfortable. Imagine if you were dropped in the 1800s and you had a black brother or sister bearing the image of Christ, appealing to you as a white believer and saying, can you not plead with me, see my case? And they say, yes, but I just don't want to make that person uncomfortable. So I just, I'm not going to talk about it so much. And we can look back at that and say, that's insanity to not see God's word as so plain and apply it as plainly as well. And yet we do the same many times with sins that our culture has signed off on as being on the approved list. But we know that's a moving target. So we embrace God's world not, not only as a foundation for morality itself, but also primarily a tool to exegete our own hearts, to see our own sin, our own downfalls. Obviously, because we can see other people's sin so much more easily than we can see our own sin. And then lastly, we embrace it regardless of what the world says. And I say that this week and not last week, because this week the world says amen and yes. That is sinful. That is wrong. Whatever God you worship and God you serve, I'm fine with you as long as you say that's sinful. Great. But we embrace it regardless of what the world says. We don't need to take our cues from culture to see, are they okay with this? Then we can practice it. Have you ever looked at scripture and thought to yourself, why is it that the Israelites are so tempted towards serving gold or silver or wooden images? What is it about that that's so appealing to them? Well, if you know their culture, if you know their immediate context, you know that's exactly the sin that their culture struggles with. So why would it not be the sin that they struggle with? We look at that and say, that's insane. They have a living God who has led them out of the land of Egypt. Why don't they just worship him how he says to be worshiped? And yet, everyone in their culture practices worship this way. And so, are we surprised that Israel struggles with that kind of a sin temptation? They have a blind spot according to their culture. And we can see it so clearly in ancient Israel and so dimly in our own day. Now, why do I say all that? The reason we need to be clear about sin, the reason we need to be uncompromising on sin, is because when we know sin in our own hearts, and we see it according to God's law, grace be to God and mercy to him, or from him, 
because he has given us an opportunity to be convicted and to repent of our sin. When we are revealed sin in our own hearts, that is not for us to feel guilt or shame as the world feels guilt and shame, but the kind of guilt and shame that leads us to repentance, godly guilt and shame. And we ought to, as people who love our neighbor, give them the opportunity to do the same, to proclaim God's word faithfully so that they they can look at sin in their own life, they can see what God's word says, and we give them an opportunity to repent. We say when God says it's wrong, we say it's wrong. Now, I'm not just saying that in isolation, because even in some of the examples I've cited, in the, in the case of Nazi Germany, there were Christians who are triumphed today as people who were champions of the faith. And those Christians, they were the kind of people who stood on God's word and opposed the German church and opposed the Nazi regime. If you've ever heard the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he literally died for teaching against the abuses of the Nazi, the Nazi empire and other clergy in the Nazi church who he said were compromising on the word of God. And it, and it put him in a concentration camp and ultimately led to his death. And we look at him and we say, wow, even though culture spoke so loudly, God's word was able to pierce and, and get faithful testimony out there. But so it is the case with the slave trade. Although the vast majority of Christians seemingly had blind spots to that, uh, we know of one famous hymn writer, John Newton, who in the midst of his own sin and participation in trafficking humans, came under the conviction of sin, the awareness of grace, and said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. I was once lost, but now I am found. Now imagine, you look at someone who bears the image of Christ today, stuck in their own sin, their own culture's approval of that sin, and and you would rob them of the opportunity to repent and find that kind of grace in God. It's so easy for us to look at slavery and say, they should have repented. So easy for us to look at the German church and say they should have repented. And a myriad of other things in world history that we can look clearly on and say, wrong. What about the sins in our culture? What about the sins that your coworkers struggle with? Think about the kind of conversation you might have to have with someone who's blind and has blind spots, maybe in the church, maybe in the world. And you've hesitated either for fear of man or for the approval of man to tell them God's word as it is proclaimed in scripture. And consider, consider that this is your opportunity to look at that moment and say, I can do better. Because God's word is clear and his word is not oppressive. His yoke is easy, his burden is light, his grace is sufficient, his power is magnificent, and his mercies are always available to those who seek him. And when we teach people to repent and believe, we are teaching them to cry out for help, cry out for mercy to a God who hears and answers cries for mercy and help. And for all those reasons, for all those reasons, we should love God's law. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. It is a light unto our feet. It shows us the way in which we ought to walk. It gives life. It gives clarity. It gives conviction. It breeds grace. It shows us that we have no hope apart from you. And Lord, we thank you that you are pleased to show your word to us. 
We ask for your strength and courage as we are to go into the world and proclaim this truth where the world says it is right and where, where the world says it is wrong, that we would proclaim it faithfully the same by your grace and by your spirit, which is sufficient for all our needs. We pray this in your name. Amen.